If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. The Negro Motorist Green Book was published from 1936 to 1967. I was born close to the midpoint of the period of its publication. So I was almost a teenager when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, legally ending segregation in public places and banning employment discrimination. I know firsthand that this did not change people's everyday behavior in communities across America. African Americans who had lived through and survived segregation and Jim Crow knew this, talked about how deeply held many beliefs were, and knew how individuals and communities were likely to hold on to practices that were familiar and comfortable. The emotional legacy of this restrictive tense time in America is not something that can easily disappear. Coping and survival techniques had been developed and shared among black people over decades. This collective knowledge could not, would not be forgotten with the signing of the Civil Rights Act. It would continue to be passed on by the previous generation to me and my contemporaries, and my generation would share them with the next through intimate conversations, advice, and patterns of behavior. This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcasts, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. In this episode, we'll explore how this history still sits in the lives of people we met as my producer, Janae Woods-Weber, and I drove the Green Book from Detroit to New Orleans. African-American studies professor Kofense Chike at Wayne State University in Detroit shared with Janae and me stories he had heard about traveling in the South. His words also got me to reflect on my childhood trips from south of Tallahassee, Florida. I heard people talk about when they traveled south, they had to uh, oftentimes pack their own lunches because they couldn't stop to eat once they got so far in the south. Of course, I heard stories about the uh, classical, and I don't know if you heard this shoebox lunch. They would, you know, put the fried chicken and biscuits and whatever else in a shoebox. And, you know, when you got so far down south, this is what you resorted to. Or even if you weren't going by car, you did this on bus on the bus as well. I did this. My parents did this when we would go to visit my relative mm-hmm. in Lake City, Florida, or Thomasville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. We would pack the shoeboxes with the fried chicken and tea mm-hmm. cakes and knee-high soda, grape and orange knee-high soda in the trunk mm-hmm. of the car, or in a you know something with ice in it on the back. Right. That's what we did. Yep. And those ladies who made that food had to be chemists because <laughs> that food could not spoil in that heat. <laughs> So you grew up in New York? Did you no, grow up in I grew York? up in a, I grew up in a village in the Florida Panhandle. So I grew up in the deep south during segregation. Okay. And so I went to visit various relatives and mm-hmm. you had to pack all of that. You yes. had to have a, 
a can of gas in the back of the car in case something mm -hmm. went wrong. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't have a car. It was my uncle's son who drove the car mm -hmm. uh, or his truck, depending upon what vehicle he had at that time. Mm -hmm. And we would all pile into one car and go there. And it was always one drive. We'd leave early in the morning mm -hmm. and then drive and make sure we got there before the sunset. That was another thing. You didn't travel at nighttime. Well, you tried not, not to. Kofense's story brought me back to my own childhood and taking road trips to visit relatives. While he spoke, I could almost smell the shoeboxes full of food. It stimulated memories of my mother's voice telling us to eat carefully as we placed the shoeboxes on our lap. She did not want us to mess up our freshly clean clothes we were traveling in. It reminded me of listening to my uncle humming a hymn or spiritual to himself as he watched the speedometer and the cars on the road. Occasionally, when he spotted something concerning ahead, he would say to us in a firm voice, Y'all need to be real quiet now. Eventually, one of the adults would say, It's all fine, it's all fine, and we could talk again. When we reached Lake City, Florida, where we went to visit my Uncle Louie and his family, we would jump out of the car and become rambunctious kids again, finally free from the car where we had been well-behaved for a long, long time. And we always knew that Uncle Louie's wife would have chicken and rice for us on the stove. We would crowd around the table in their dining room. I remember my grandmother would always say, Well, you know, the Lord saw us through this trip again. In a few days, there would be talk about the trip back home and how the adults would get ready for it. While my relatives didn't use the Green Book because this was only a one-day drive, what my parents and uncle carried with them were the perceptions of our community's collective on-the-road experiences. This was true for black travelers from the North, South, East, and West. Look, all over the South, the story was the same. And this is regarding my sister not wanting to go through Mississippi. Uh, even in our little town, the story's the same. African-Americans, Black people could not show that they, they were elevated in any way, especially in a socioeconomic status, than the poorest white person. And the poorest white person had the right to do you anything they wanted to do without retribution, without punishment, or anything. And so African-Americans learned, as we see here with this book, how to be proactive in avoiding that. The vulnerability associated with being on the road driving long distances deeply worried some people, like Dr. Bayham's sister. Unintentionally attracting a white person's attention could be dangerous. Dr. Eva Bayham of New Orleans explains some of the reasons why. And so the fear of being stopped in the night or the day, especially a woman with children, of being assaulted, probably, or could be raped, uh, having a car blown up or stolen or whatever, being stranded, was so great that it was best to avoid traveling through there. The backstory, I think, to this book is that here we see, although this is proactive, this was to, of course, support people in many ways, the dark side is what could happen if you went away, you strayed off this path. And it tells you 
and emotional ways what our people had to put up with. There's another less talked about reaction to the Green Book's existence. It says more about the widely accepted government-sanctioned practices that made the book necessary than about the benefits it provided to the people who used it. William Williams, who teaches architecture at the University of Cincinnati, explains. When I talk to people, they all remember the Green Book, and now they kind of remember it fondly. I think at the time, they probably thought of it more of a necessary evil. You know, it wasn't something that they were proud of. It was just something that you had to have. Did you ever hear any stories from anyone about using the Green Book or what might have happened to them if they didn't have a Green Book? Well, there's several stories. There's actually a good friend of mine here, a guy named uh, Mike Burson, who's also an architect. We're like less than 1% of the whole you know, population of architects in the country. But Mike Burson was from just outside Illinois. And he went to travel to his family down in South Carolina. And he remembers that his family was, like, dedicated to the Green Book. I mean, they didn't go anywhere without it. And I know when I grew up, and I'm a little bit younger than him, but I do remember that my family always, always packed our food. You know, I'm a little kid. I'm kind of like, I just want to stop at the... I think it was like Stuckies or something like that. You know, one, I, I remember stu- Stuckies. <laughs> Stuckies in their pecan rolls. That's right. <laughs> I, you know, I just wanted to stop at the Stuckies and get some food, right? And mom would say no. They're like, no, we got, we already packed our food. I'm like, While the Green Book told you where the safe havens were, word of mouth in your community spread information about places to avoid. Whether it was the sundown towns along the routes you took on the highways or a mall in an adjacent community. In Detroit, Jamon Jordan, an avid historian and local tour guide, talks about his teenage outings to local malls and the advice his grandmother gave him about keeping himself safe. No, by the time I got to be about 10 years old and 11 years old, and we're beginning to take buses to go to the mall with our mom and then then eventually by ourselves, me and my older brother, we would catch the bus to the mall. We were told clearly that Jim Crow still exists in Detroit, in the Detroit area. You do not go to Fairlane Mall. Fairlane was in Dearborn. Dearborn had this long history of segregation that extended even into the 70s and 80s. And so the mayor, Orville Hubbard, was a staunch segregationist from the 1930s to the 90s. He died in the 1970s. He died a segregationist. And he had been the mayor for 40 years in Dearborn. And he had a phrase, a motto called, keep Dearborn clean. The effects of Jim Crow and segregation lasted decades beyond the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that outlawed the practice. The daily impact on people's lives continued. So we had basically places that were, for all intents and purposes, official sundown towns that surrounded the city of Detroit. You don't have maybe official sundown towns. But you have unofficial sundown towns even right now. There are areas outside of the city of Detroit that if you drive in and you're African-American and you're not on the main drag, a big street like Woodward, or you're not on a street like that, police will be called and you'll be pulled over. And they'll be like, what are you doing over out here? Why are you here? What's the purpose? And you'll be harassed. And you'll get the message that you're not, you shouldn't be there. And so, no, it's not officially a sundown town. But that's exactly what it really is.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As we drove the green book, Janae and I talked about works we knew that had been inspired by the publication. Nearing our last stop in New Orleans, we were eager to meet Jan Miles. I brought her book, The Post-Racial Negro Green Book, with us on the road trip. This is a state-by-state almanac of atrocities against Black people. The original Green Book has been out of print for quite some time now. What inspired you to create the post-racial Negro Green Book? I had actually started compiling incidents of racism around 2000, maybe 15, because somewhere around 2012, 2013, I started seeing an uptick, and then there were more and more incidents, and they were coming through the news cycle so quickly. And at some point, it occurred to me, this is actual contemporary history. These are important incidents, and someone should be preserving this. And I didn't see anyone else doing it, so I started doing it. And at first, I was doing it on a little website, and then I realized, because my background actually is book publishing, it would make a lot of sense if I put it in a book. I just happened to have, and I don't even remember why, I happened to have a facsimile copy of the Negro Motorist Green Book. And I had been working with another book called A Hundred Years of Lynching, which is a documentation, basically sort of what I did, compiling of actual news stories of lynchings. And I realized if I put those concepts together, it would be really impactful. So that's how it happened. Listening to Jan talk about how she developed the book, I wanted to know what common thread emerged as she brought all of the information together. Someone I know referred to mine as an inverse green book, and I thought that made a lot of sense. But I actually, when I started it, I think my intention was to do it for us. I was doing it for Black people because it's our history, and I didn't want those incidents and those people to be forgotten in these very fast news cycles that we have. But once I was done, I thought that it would be a really good educational piece for white people who are not as aware, who aren't receiving the same kind of information in their news cycles that Black people or people who are really social justice affiliated are receiving. Do you think that we still need a green book that shows Black people, African Americans, places where we can be safer? Yes. To a certain extent, I think that would be helpful. And I actually know people that are working on projects like that. They're doing it with the technology of today, which is, oh, we're going to create an app of places that are Black-friendly. Diddy, I think. And, And some partners had announced, I think, last year that they were going to be putting something like that out. But I know people personally who are also working on those kinds of projects. 
I know encountering facts about the terrorizing and destruction of black bodies would take a toll on me. So I wondered how Jan manages the emotional trauma of her important work. It was a, it was a very long process, and it's interesting that you ask that because at times it was emotionally draining, but I feel like as the process went on, it became for me actually cathartic because normally we're receiving this information all the time. We're seeing it in our news feeds or hearing about it, and you don't have anything to do but internalize it. So for me, I actually created a place to put it. So it was actually, I think, sort of healing to be able to say, all right, this thing happened, and now I've put it down in this book, and now I move on. Mm -hmm. So I think it actually was a good exercise for me. Jan's phrase, a place to put it, made me think about my conversation with T. Marie King, a community organizer in Birmingham, Alabama. Her family had been touched by racial terror. As she talked about how she became aware of the Green Book and why it undoubtedly saved lives, she also reflected how her relatives dealt with the family's history in Alabama. Janae and I wondered, how does her family deal with this? Where do family members place this horrific truth in their collective story? As she talked about how she became aware of the Green Book, she also reflected on how her relatives dealt with the family's history in Alabama. I remember coming across a magazine that had a story in it or an article about the Green Book. And I remember asking my grandmother about it and, oh, well, that's what black people use to safely travel. Oh, okay. Well, why? Well, you had something called the Klan. And, you know, they didn't too much care for black people. And so she had a way of kind of really breaking it down, but we never went into depth about it. And I found out later due to the things that they experienced in Lowndes County, you know, because there's um, books and information on bloody Lowndes of how bad, you know, the Klan acted in Lowndes County. I understand the silence of T. Marie's relatives. When I was growing up, I would sometimes ask questions about the past. A relative would often respond with a question. Why do you want to know about that? The statement that followed this question was always said so firmly, so resolutely, as if to make it unforgettable. That's my past, not yours. You need to focus on what's in front of you because that's where your life is. It became a guiding principle in my life. Because T. Marie's family lived the trouble that the Green Book tried to prevent in the lives of travelers, she speaks from a knowing point of view. And so for my grandmother to be a part of that community at that time, I'm sure that was trauma that she carried and didn't want to delve into. And then recently, maybe two or three years ago, somebody produced a, a small play on the Green Book that I went to see that it told it from a different perspective, but it was still a good story. And I think it was just an opportunity to really kind of introduce people to the Green Book who may not have truly been aware of it or understanding the necessity of it. Um, I think a lot of times people hear things in passing and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard that. But not truly knowing, no, this was people's lives depended on this publication. 
When Janae and I first set off on our journey to drive the Green Book, our first interview was actually in Brooklyn, New York, with artist Derek Adams. He had created paintings and sculptures inspired by the Green Book for an exhibition called Sanctuary at the Museum of Art and Design. He had researched the Green Book and its creator, Victor Hugo Green, as well as the publication's history and impact, all to produce artworks that captured the intent, the symbolic elements, and the effect of the Green Book. The research that kind of led me to the direction of the Green Book, it happens all the time, like when I'm making work. Like I said, my first go-to, which I think it happens for a lot of creative Black people, is go first on the negative experiences that we've had just in general in America. I also find an effort to find, like, what else happened that was opposite that at that time that no one knows about. Based on what Victor Green chose to emphasize, as well as what he chose not to include in the Green Book, his focus on the positive is similar to Derek's. I thought the Green Book was not only an important tool of navigation, it was a design project. It was a, and it was a successful design project publication because it was historic. It's an archive. And, you know, and my thing was is that, you know, a lot of young people are making these zines these days. Derek's connecting the Green Book to zines was a thought-provoking surprise. He made me consider how the act of information sharing that shaped the Green Book has evolved and been adapted by young people today. I don't think they always think about the purpose of what they're making and how can it be more impactful than just a, of a idea of expression? You know, not saying that a lot of young people just do it for expression. Some people are effective um, in a way of using the zines for a lot of different levels of awakening and awareness. But this green book was a zine, basically, in a way. And it was just a, a directory with a bunch of information and people just uh, put things in it. But it was such an impact. Victor Hugo Green said he wanted there to be a time, and he believed there would be, when the Negro Motorist Green Book would no longer be necessary. I asked Jan Miles, the author of the post-racial Negro Green Book, if she can imagine a time when she would stop cataloging events. Not in my lifetime. I, I, don't, I, don't, see, I don't foresee an end to it, no maybe in someone else's lifetime. If I had a child, probably not in that person's lifetime either. I don't know how we fix this. Jan's statement may feel pessimistic, but it is a truthful statement about the persistence of racism and institutional bias. The prejudices don't seem rooted in a geographic place, but in people's psyches. Many Black people talked about how diverse groups of people thrived together when they lived in more inclusive communities, especially during the time the Green Book was published. That is, until their neighbors, often newly arrived Europeans, moved to segregated areas and began to experience the benefits that being white in America offered. Little by little, many of these people acquired the anti-Black prejudices that permeated their new environment. Sometimes it was demonstrated quietly in the complicity of silence in the face of inequality. Sometimes it was more blatant when people began taking on the behaviors and language of white privilege, even white supremacy. I can't help but wonder how people made this change inside themselves, in their hearts and minds. 
How could they justify excluding, even degrading others, when at some point in their lives or their family's history, they too had been mistreated because of their racial, ethnic, or religious identity? Did they forget, suppress, deny, or carefully revise their own stories to excuse their acceptance of prejudice? Or were they so relieved to have finally been accepted as members of the white majority that they were happy to embrace the privileges that status bestowed, including the privilege of feeling superior? When we look at our country's ongoing struggle with racism and inequality today, it is clear that these behaviors continue to persist within our society. And it's no wonder the Green Book was necessary for so long and that the struggle for racial justice continues. That's all for this episode of Driving the Green Book. Join us next week as we head to Birmingham, Alabama to visit one of the best-known upscale places for African-American travelers to stay and an epicenter of the civil rights movement, the A.G. Gadsden Motel. Special thanks to Derek Adams, Dr. Eva Bayam, Kafense Chike, Jaman Jordan, Timurie King, Jan Miles, and William Williams. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakemi Aladasui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast Vice President. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.